likes it. You know, she you know she thinks people are following her and watching her every move and those sorts of things. And uh, as much as I try to talk her out of it, you know, it just it just isn't working. It isn't yeah. working. It just it's just distressing on my part because I know these things are not happening. Right. And I keep kind of give me proof, give me proof. How do you know? I mean, it's just so crazy yeah. it's really and i really yeah. uh, she needs help but i i don't know and she lives in, in she's in pennsylvania and um I, I just don't know what else to do to help her really yeah um, and intervention and you know she ever she'll be coming back to texas soon but um yeah i don't know yeah well, just for newcomers let's start um connie um I mean, once again, I, you know, we're um, these things take us to um, difficult ground um, for all of us. But if she's doing what you're saying, it just seems to me. I mean, I, I remember you. Wasn't it you talking about the need for some sons to say something to their mother? Um, yeah. It just seems to me that. If she's doing what you're describing, it would be good for her to have help to talk with somebody because those are not. If she's serious about that, then she could. She could. That's a difficult situation, and a. And it, it really is. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, I, I just don't know how to handle it, but. Yeah. Well, handle it by telling her to get some help and talk with her parents. And how old is she? She she's forty nine. Oh. Her mom died when she was 18. Uh, my brother, you know, my brother is not the best nurturer of all. Yeah, uh, yeah. He try. I'm sure he tries his best, but, you know, it's not like having your mother there. Right. And been, she's been through a lot, but she, she just has, it, it's these things that she's telling me, it's just not happening. Yeah. I just know it's all yeah. in her, it's in her head, so. Yeah, those are dangerous. It really is, and yeah. I, it, anyway, if we can just pray for her, that would be awesome. What What's her name again? Kimberly. 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 Kimberly, um, Michelle and Bill, hello. <laughs> um, okay, let's 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 start. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God. Wow. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, and more especially for the gift of our faith. Um, it, it's hard for me to be a part of these meetings. I'm going to mute you because I don't know if that sounds an echo for me. So, if any of you needs to come on, if you would just unmute and, and then put your mute back on, because I'm not sure that echo isn't for me. Um, um, most especially for our faith, um, it's a great gift and a great burden because it's probably the one thing that most separates us from the world. Um, we, we're asked to see things differently and um, I think in our faith um, we know that um, our church holds fundamentally to the work of bringing faith and reason together. Um, um, we set ourselves off from other Christian faiths by that fact. That means there's a heavy burden on what we do with our powers of reason. 
um, that we're in the world, we're of it, and we're asked to help with it, with all of our powers of reason and understanding. So when we face difficulties, we're going to take them more seriously than other people. And yet at the same time, our faith calls us to trust in you. Um, there's a cross in that because it means we just can't go along with what other people do or the way they see things. We have to bring you to the world, bear difficult crosses, take risks that often the world doesn't want to take. So I ask a blessing for all of us um, in our efforts to bring those two powers together, faith and reason strengthening us our powers of reason to see it's one of the things we're doing in our work together here um, using our powers of reason to see into these things so we see better and also to see how much what we do see through our powers of reason strengthens our faith that it opens up ways of seeing in our faith it helps us enter mysteries more fully so um, um, grace us, please, with your spirit, that we can be strengthened in, in both of those things, in our powers of reason and our faith. I ask a special blessing on Kimberly. Um, watch over her, please. Um, all of us need help. All of us. All of us do. <laughs> I hope I'm not speaking for myself here. I may be. I think all of us are a little bit sick. We all carry sins. We're not pure the way we would like to be or sometimes the way people in the world think they are. And we have sins, all of us, we carry sins. Um, thank God for the sacraments. Thank you, sorry, thank you for the sacraments, the Eucharist, confession, all of them. Um, watch over, Kimberly. Um, help her heart to quiet and ease. To pull back some from the world, to trust in you, to let go of things that might make her anxious or disturb her, um, and um, help her to get help, help those around her. And I'm feel a little bit awkward here, Connie, I hope I'm not overstepping things here. Help people who are concerned about her, like Connie, help them see what it is they can do and give them the courage to do it, to be careful. There are never easy lines, you know. <laughs> One of the characteristics of Americans is we're so practical oriented. You know, we read books on how to do it all the time. How to fix a dresser, how to fix plumbing, how to remodel the kitchen. Um, but there are no how to do it books on spiritual matters we enter mysteries and um, when we do it, it they always involve us in risks and give us the courage the humility to enter those mysteries with you take care be prudent um, and trust um, and I ask for a blessing again on all that we're doing together strengthen us in our common efforts the beauty for me at this moment is that we're going to purgatory I mean, we're reading Purgatory now, and I like to think of all of us taking that journey together, that all of us are going up Purgatory in our real lives, um, not just in literature. And I'm grateful for the prayers that we offer and the support and the humor 
that we share and the work that we do together. So we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, if um, I sent an, a, um, an outline to all of you tonight, and I sent one of the, or I, I mentioned that we do one of the Psalms. <clears throat> I don't know that all of you got there. You can go online to the um, Literature's Prophecy site and go to our file, the um, SE, the C's file, to the poetry packet, and one of them is um, collection of psalms. Included in that collection of psalms is um, Psalm 104. It happened to be the one that we read um, on Monday at Mass. And I'd like to do it again tonight just because I, I, you know that I've wanted to start Robinson's that long poem called Isaac and Archibald. I hope you're reading it. It's, it's included in our collection on our site. But it's very long, and I, I've just been reluctant to get to it um, when we're um, setting out. You know, it, um, it took a while to complete the Inferno, and we're just setting out on the um, Purgatorio. But I think probably next week um, I will start that poem, even though it's long. It'll take several weeks to get through it. But tonight I wanted to do something easy just so that we could keep our focus on Dante um, for a bit. So this is Psalm 104. It's in that packet. If you don't have it, don't worry about it. Just listen to it. It's very simple. It's straightforward. It's a celebration of God and his works. Okay. If you want to join in, the response is, may the Lord be glad in his works. So if we were doing a psalm in the morning mass, we'd be repeating the um, the response. Um, so feel free to join in or be quiet, which whichever you'd like to do. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are great indeed. You are clothed with majesty and glory, robed in light as with a cloak. May the Lord be glad in his works. You fix the earth upon its foundation, not to be moved forever. With the ocean as with a garment, you covered it. Above the mountains, the waters stood. May the Lord be glad in his works. You send forth springs into the watercourses that wind among the mountains. Beside them, the birds of heaven dwell. From among the branches, they send forth their song. May the Lord be glad in his works. How manifold are your works, O Lord. In wisdom you have wrought them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Hallelujah. May the Lord be glad in his works. Okay, let's start. Oh, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've got a boy, my, I knew there was something. If we could break back to prayer for a minute, I'm sorry, just for a second. Um, she was on my mind, and I, I think I kept looking to her and then just got distracted. I want to, um, um, Lord, I ask for a special blessing on um, Melody. Um, they were away last week, and I was hoping to see her tonight, but she's not here. But um, I know she's been asking us for prayers for her and her family. Um, 
and I, I know these prayers are really important to her. Um, the fact that we're praying with her adds a depth to her, her own faith. So um, let a blessing be with her and let her know that we're all with her and her family. Um, strengthen her with your spirit and all that she's doing, giving her the give her the courage to do whatever's difficult in what she and her husband are doing and their kids. Um, but let them feel um, your closeness to them and all they're doing. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay. Um, quick review. Hey, Professor. Yeah. Is that who is that? Bob? Or David? Who's this? Bill. Oh, Bill. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Um, I'm sorry. My wife had the mute on, and I thought I was talking, and I missed you. Um, I have a, a friend whose um, grandchild, it's only two, <clears throat> has leukemia. And it's going through a lot of um, 20 days so far in the um, ICU. Um, six months. Anyway. Michael or Bill, Bill, hold on for one second. I'm going to mute everybody again because there's a, I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to mute everybody. Um, Bill, can you just unmute yours alone and see if that helps? Because you were breaking up, so I'm going to mute everybody. If you could just unmute yourself, Bill, I want to see if that helps. Go ahead. So you've got a grandson, and he's been in the hospital for what's going on. No, it's not my, <laughs> I'm not that old. It's not my grandson, it's a friend's grandson. Uh, it's only two years old and um, has leukemia and is going through chemo and spinal taps. And he's two years um, old. The, the family's like traumatized and uh, I would appreciate prayers that the boy can, um, you know, he has leukemia, but it's like one of those, like, I'm not sure if it's curable, but it's the most treatable type of leukemia. So, um, would request prayers for the little boy. What's his uh, name, Bill? I, I don't know. I, okay. I really don't know. I asked the same question, but they didn't reply to me. Yeah. So, I'm sorry. No, no. Let's take a second again. If we can, I'm I'm so glad you did it, Bill. Genuinely glad, genuinely glad you did it. Um, all of us, um, if we could offer our hearts for a minute for this God, this little two-year-old boy, um, and all the suffering, and more particularly for his parents and the people who love him. Um, it's hard for us as parents to um, watch our kids be helpless and. I think I'm speaking about a condition that doesn't change because as parents we carry that with us when our kids are 40. You know, I mean, um, the loves don't stop when our kids grow up and things happen that catch us. So be with this little boy, surround him with your protection, most especially be with his parents. They're more aware than he is. They carry a lot more. Um, my special request is Whatever happens um, with this boy, let these circumstances strengthen this couple 
um, his father and mother in their faith, um, death shouldn't separate us. The experience of death shouldn't separate us or distance us. If anything, it should help us turn to you to get stronger in our faith because <laughs> there's nobody here that's going to escape death. Um, we're all getting close to it. So it's something we have to prepare for. I, I know it's harder um, to survive a child, particularly if he's young, but be with these parents. Um, let this be um, an occasion for them growing in their faith. I, that that psalm, or I mean that poem I read of Ben Johnson's My First Son, remember, is being chastised when he lost him and realizing that the child wasn't his, it was God's, and he had to turn loose of him. Help this couple to something like that. All of us need it. Um, we have to let go of our loves if we're to love the way you've asked. So be with this family in this trial. Um, we offer these prayers again in your name, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Bill, thank you for asking. I'm really glad um, that you guys do. Prayers are, are are one of probably one of our greatest gifts. Not probably is one of our greatest gifts. So, okay, quick quick review. Um, we're on here, right? Don't I? Yeah. Um, last week um, we finally moved out of hell, <laughs> and. Um, I know that it was a big relief for a lot of you. Um, and we went through some of the differences, and I don't want to go through them all again, but just to mention a couple that I think are important to remember. Remember that in hell what we're seeing is a state that's fixed. That whatever it was that people chose over God fixes them. It's like they're caught in a moment. If this is what they love, that's what they've got. That's what they wanted. That's what they've got. So the contrapasso, the punishments, the action, everything that goes on is an expression of that choice. It's another way of saying that this is the way you wanted the world. You wanted the, way, the world to be this way. This is what you've got. Whether it was gluttony or lust or um, violence or fraud in any of its particular forms, that's what they chose, that's what they've got. What Dante is showing us is the nature of sin. He's exactly like a doctor. He's reasoning from effects to causes. He's looking at the effects of a sin. This is what lust does to me, to any of us. This is what over drinking or eating or fraud, lying. This is what it does to me and um, this is what it does to the world. It's like a blindness that you get enclosed so that you see things through this particular sin, whatever that disorder is. So what we saw as we went through hell um, were conditions of sin. One of the things that I just want to emphasize, I, I, I somehow wish I could get the two classes together. We just did Oedipus Rex in, in St. Francis, and we're, right now we're starting Lear. I think I'm actually going to send you guys some notes on Lear because what's happening relates so much to our modern world um, that I'm going to send. You guys don't have to look at it. it. It's just, you know, for those of you who might want to, but it just stuns me what's going on in Lear 
I haven't touched him in, I don't know, 15 years, but I'm a little bit overwhelmed again by what I see. One of the ironies of Oedipus Rex is this. You may not know that play. We just finished it there. Oedipus is a great king of Thebes, and he lives at a time when Thebes is undergoing a plague, and um, he's the king and was made the king because he solved the riddle of the Sphinx, um, and everybody trusts him in his mind. And the plague that they're suffering from right now is a result of some impiety, some wrong. And Oedipus has to get to the bottom of it. So he starts pushing to discover the cause of this plague. And he ends up learning that he is. That the plague that is killing people in Thebes is the result of his having killed his father and slept with his mother. It's the basis of Freud's theory of psychology. I don't want to go into that. It's not the point here. The point I want to make is this. He did nothing wrong in his own mind. He wasn't prepared for this because he didn't know that he killed his father or slept with his mother. The man he killed on the highway was a stranger who was threatening him. The, the, the queen who is his wife was given to him because the king had died. So in neither case was he doing a conscious wrong. Aristotle said he thought Oedipus Rex was the paradigm of tragedy because it was the most it was the purest rendering of irony that he knew. And I hope everybody sees that. He slept with his mother, killed his father, and he didn't know it. So in his own mind he was innocent. One of the reasons Freud took that up is because he thought that was a perfect example of what goes on in the unconscious that we're not aware of these disorders in us, and the whole point of psychotherapy is to get to them, to get past repressions and denials. I happen to disagree with Freud basically on all of this, but, but there's a profound truth in that, and I think Sophocles saw it. Dante is ex in exactly the same condition. That's my reason for bringing it up here. The Divine Comedy begins with Dante trying to go up that mountain and is pushed back. He can't, he doesn't know why. What we learn is that he had no idea of, of his sins, the depth of them in the human soul. So the, one of the first things that we learn is he can't climb that mountain until he goes down, until he learns to see his sins, because until he does, he can't, he can't begin to take on penance. Why in the world would you take on a penance when there's nothing wrong with you? I mean, that's the modern, that's the modern stance. F Freud blew that away. What Sophocles was showing us is that there's a lot going on within us that we don't know. And that's what Dante's showing us. We had to go down to see the nature of sin that most of us don't see so that we could begin to change our lives to turn away from them. How can we turn from something when there's nothing there to turn away from. Yeah? I hope this is clear, yeah? So in hell, what we're seeing is the nature of sin in its various forms and in its gradations. The sins of incontinence, the sins of violence, and the sins of fraud. They get deeper and deeper and worse and worse the more we get to the center of sin. And at the center, what we saw were all these scenes involving eating that people were eating other people, and Satan himself was feasting on Judas, Brutus, and Cassius. 
So what we saw at the center of hell is the way in which sin leads us to use other people, to feed on them. You know, one of the songs in our Mass is the bread of life, I am the bread of life. We're asked to offer ourselves as bread in Christ. He offers himself as the bread of life. When we take him in, we're invited to offer our lives to others. So the reverse of that is eating others, using others for ourselves, selfishly. Wanting things to go the way we want and using people for that. So if hell is the opposite of heaven, we, that's what we'd expected. Heaven is just the opposite, and that's what we do. Um, that what Christ did was come down to offer himself and, so that we could live, and he offers himself as the bread of life. Okay, that's, that's the inferno. What, it's the condition of sin that we choose in place of God. We started the purgatorio last week, and what, what we saw was that in the purgatorio, what happens is, now that Dante's seen sins, he can begin to do something about it. And what we learn immediately is that the, is that the people in purgatory are liable to the same sins, exactly the same sins. The difference is that they, they're willing to admit them and begin to do something about them. And they can only do that with God's help. So the purgatory is Dante coming back to the foot of that mountain where the story began and is beginning to climb it. But the difference is now he sees his sins and like the penitents who are there undergoing penance, um, he's learning to see how important mercy is for answering them. So the difference between hell and purgatory is Hell is governed by law. People get exactly what they want according to the law. Purgatory is different because it's there that people are answering the law, but in a spirit of mercy. Every one of them is undergoing penance. They have to satisfy a law. They've done wrong. Too proud, too envious, too wrathful, whatever the condition was. So they're doing penance for their sins, and they're getting better. And as they move up purgatory, an angel removes a P, the Latin for sin, and they get lighter and lighter. So what happens with them is just the opposite of what happens here on earth. The higher we go up a mountain, um, the harder it gets to climb. We have less air, heavier. The higher they go up purgatory, the lighter the work, the easier. Because the, the first sins are the gravest. Pride, envy are the worst sins. Get rid of those, and the rest of the sins get easier. Okay? So hell was a condition of fixation. People were arrested. They were stuck. It's in darkness. Purgatory is a place of light and change. People are undergoing changes. They're not stuck anymore. They're in tune with nature. Um, and um, they're, they're working together. In hell, souls are isolated in mercy there's um, a spirit of community people are undergoing this penance together i think i think in all my reading it's the most perfect image of the church that we have remember saint augustine's image of the city the city of man the city of god um, the city of man is destined to hell it's directed to its own ends city of god is for him 
And between those two cities is what he called a peregrine city, um, a pilgrim city, peregrine, wandering. Um, it's the church in the world. When Christ came here, he was in exile. He left his home. Um, we're in exile. This is not our home. Our home is with God. The church is our way back. So purgatory is that turning from sin, that first act that began the, the divine comedy, but now Dante can actively take it up because he's learned to see those sins and now he's going to learn um, how to answer them. It's the work of the church. Um, last time I said that there were two ways of knowing and seeing that everybody in hell is stuck in their vision, remember? The contrapasso, the punishments, are all the effect of their sin. That's what they chose, that's the world in which they've placed themselves. So the mode of knowledge in hell is irony. They don't know that they don't know. They don't want to admit their sins. They want to act like they're okay. There's no reason for them to change. They think they're okay. So the mode of irony of hell is, I mean the mode of knowledge in hell is irony. The mode of knowledge in purgatory is wonder. This is so crucial. The only, the only reason for the irony in, in the inferno is because Dante stands outside of hell going through it. The souls themselves can't see, they're stuck. So the irony exists between what, what they see and don't see in Dante. It's a mode of knowing that's ironic. They, they don't know that they're blind, but we know it through Dante. In the purgatory, that's changed. The mode of knowing for the penitents is not irony. They know they're in sin. They've accepted it. They're not afraid of it. They live in wonder. It's a little bit like that state that Christ talked about when he said, be as the children, and he pointed to the kids, remember? St. Augustine, or um, Aristotle said, the beginning, of, the beginning of wisdom is wonder. Wonder is wanting to know the causes of things. It's asking questions. It's that Socratic stance. Why is this? Why is that? Where do people go when they die? Where do they come from? It's a constant state of wonder. It's like recovering something of the wonder we had as children. So as the souls go up purgatory, they're full of wonder. We will experience some form of wonder at every ledge because that's the nature of returning to God. We're beginning to open to miracles, to things we didn't see. So in irony, it's pride and, or I'm sorry, in the inferno, it's pride and irony. They isolate themselves in their own pride. So they create their own hell. <coughs> in purgatory, it's humility and wonder. They're learning to put themselves away and move to God. We talked about time as a function of love. So time's not scientific. It's not equal integrals of of something moving, something changing in equal amounts. Time is a function of love. Hell is fixed. People are not moving. There's no change. In the purgatorial, time is love. God is working with them to help them grow in love. So they're changing. They're growing. They're not becoming somebody they weren't. Each person is becoming who he was given to be. Except they're growing in the perfection of whoever they were given to be. I hope that's clear. 
The modern mind thinks there's no nature. We can make of ourselves whatever we want. Connie's Connie. Sometimes her husband may wish that she weren't. I don't know. I know, I know that Suzanne <laughs> has questions about her husband sometimes. Um, but we are who we are. God gave us. I mean, each one. So our belief is each one of us is made in the image of God. What each one of us has is per, potentially personhood. Individuals are determined by matter. To be a person involves the spirit. Let me repeat that. Our individuality rests in matter, like trees. One tree is different from another by virtue of its matter. My body is different from Suzanne and uh, Mary Jane's or Bob and Karen's, you know. But the spirit um, that informs each one of us, the person we've been given to be, helps us become that person. Connie, to be, to arrive at her end, to be fully realized who God gave her to be. The same for Tina or Bob or Karen or Mike or any of us. So time is love. It's, it's not measured in equal increments the way it is here. It's a motion of love. People growing in love to become who they were in love. Because the God who created them is the God of love. Remember Dante arrives on the shores of Purgatory on Easter Sunday. The whole journey began on Monday, Thursday when he entered hell, or shortly after that entered hell. And now he will um, spend some days here in Purgatory going up the mountain. Um, um, one, one last thing before I get to what to me is the most important aspect of Purgatory. Um... One of the interesting things about the nature of purgatory is, the, is what I would call a combination of severity and gentleness. There's no fooling around with the rules on purgatory. There shouldn't be on earth, but there is. There's no fooling around. When, when we finished last week, it was at that moment, remember when the ship of souls arrived and Casello arrived, and he and Dante were so enamored of, the mo of being reunited again, that they started singing a song. <laughs> and Cato came along and blasted both of them and said to them, what are you laggards doing? I mean, he was really angry, really angry. Told them to get going. And they get going, and you remember, I'm going to read it when we pick up the book again tonight. Virgil is um, humiliated, down, downcast. His head goes down. Because as a pagan, naturally, he's so ashamed. His dignity was offended. He, he didn't do what he should have done. Um, Cato is severe. He's not apologizing for anybody. You don't fool around. And remember we talked about the rule of the mountain. The rule of the mountain is when the sun goes down, people stop. That's not just literally because the sun goes down and we have to rest, but I think there's a profound truth in that. What Dante's showing is how important a sense of human limitations is. If we keep acting like there are no limits to us, um, we're in some sense denying our nature. It's important to rest, but more importantly, symbolically for the purgatory, for the purgatorio, it's symbolic of the fact that we constantly try to exceed ourselves and not trust in God. So, if, just imagine. I think I'm. I hope I'm. I hope I'm not misspeaking. 
if, if the souls in purgatory didn't have that rule and they wanted to get to heaven, my guess is that a lot of them would be type A people. They wouldn't stop. <laughs> they'd be going into the late hours and they'd be working their rear ends off because they want to get to heaven. But the irony is they'd be doing it in pride. They're not trusting in God. They're trusting in their own self-reliant powers. Again, one of, the, one of the causes of, I think, the worst parts of ourselves. We depend on ourselves because we're so capable. So there's this combination of, in purgatory of rules that are followed to the letter and this great courtesy and humility and gentleness. Is that clear? I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to beat it over the head here, but I, it's something that could be easily overlooked. But if we're reading the beginning, I think closely we can't miss it. Cato is the garden, guardian. Remember, each of the levels of the inferno had guardians. Cato is the guardian here at the foot of purgatory. And he's making it clear you don't fool around with the rules of penance. I remember a talk, Suzanne was going through some notes last night. Father James, when he was here at St. Francis, gave an Advent talk. And I think he was saying um, during that lecture, be sure you say no to yourself three times a day. I mean, if you knew Father James, you'd know that he tries to give practical suggestions all the time. Say no to yourself three times a day. It's a little bit like going up purgatory and purgatory, and then the sun going down, and you have to say, "Stop now, stop." How many of us do that well? Stop. Even more importantly, how many of us hear another person saying to us, "Stop now." <laughs> so there's this beautiful, wonderful sort of uh, merciful tension here in purgatory. This combination of freedom and restraint, taking seriously rules. Now let me stop here because my last point has to do with anamnesis and you know that was the major point that I wanted to make last week. I want to take a minute with here because um, it's one of the fundamental ideas governing everything that Dante does in the purgatory. But let me stop here. Any questions about what we've just covered? What's going on in purgatory? And how it's different from hell? I, I did have... I'm sorry. No, no. Go. Oh, I thought somebody else was speaking. Um, Tony and I were talking, and is, is it possible to give an example of the people in hell... When you say they don't know that they don't know, I mean, like, so they don't know what puts them in hell? Well, here, let me give an example, Connie. I mean, I, let me, and if it doesn't clear, I'll reach for another one. I mean, let me, let me try to clear this up a little bit for you. Take Francisco and Paolo at the very beginning. You know, when Dante passes the virtuous pagans, he goes to the first level of act of sin, which is lust. It's the one closest to love. And I hope everybody's seen that up purgatory, the last level will be lust, because that's the one closest to love again, except things are inverted. But in that first level, he meets Francisco and Paolo, and, and Paolo, or Francisco, tells her story. Says, um, you know, we were reading the Lancelot tales, and that day we read no more. They got so taken by the story that they put the book down and made love. Their husband comes in and kills them and didn't have time to confess. That's what's so 
pitiful about that opening canto that in lots of ways it doesn't seem like they had a chance, but what Dante's showing is take seriously what's going on because you don't know when the end is going to come. And, and I think most of us play with that. But Dante, like the church is saying, go ahead and romanticize about it, but there's a, you know, you're playing with something you shouldn't. Her response to him is to say, if the, if the Lord, if the king of the universe were friendly to us, you know, we would do this. She's blaming God. So does she see her sin? Does she even see that she doesn't even, so she doesn't know God, she's blaming him. She thinks somebody should feel sorry for her. That's why it's such a tender opening. Feel sorry for me, feel pity for me, look what happened. God mistreated me. If he had more pity, I wouldn't be here. She's blaming everybody else. Does she have any sense that she doesn't see things truthfully at all? Uh, I, I think you can see that, can't you? Yeah. And the only reason we can see it is because we're seeing it all through Dante's eyes. That's the irony of that scene. We can see that she doesn't see. Is she aware of the irony? Is she aware that what she's saying ironically turns a light on her more than it does on God? No, she's, she just doesn't see. Every figure in hell that Dante meets is in that condition. They're stuck in a kind of blindness. None of them know. In fact, the condition of hell, if you set it next to purgatory, is that nobody in hell wants to admit their sins. They, I mean, I'm just repeating. They don't need any mercy because in their own mind, they're not sinning. The difference between hell and purgatory is that people in purgatory know they're in sin. They, they see it. And because they see it, they want help. So that's why, that's the fundamental, and by the way, that points to Christ. Because what Christ did, that's, that's the whole nature of purgatory, what Christ did was come to answer the law, sins that we did wrong, to answer it with a divine love. So the whole call of Christianity is to fulfill justice, the Father's command, but in a love, in a mercy, a spirit of forgiveness. To, we're supposed to bring those two things together. That's, that's why it's so hard. I, does that help, Connie? Absolutely, yes. That's perfect. Thank you. Okay, okay. Okay, um, remember where we left off last week. It was with a wonderful irony. Um, Dante and Virgil started to turn towards the mountain to, to start their ascent. And suddenly a ship of souls arrived, Casella descends, and Dante and Casella recognize each other, and it's a touching moment because it's a reunion. We learn that Casella is there because of a pope's plenary indulgence, that he would have had to wait a year except for a plenary indulgence. So Dante is confirming, ironically, I mean the Protestants would be, go nuts with this, they're um, they're experiencing the mercy of the church from the authority of the Pope that he granted a plenary indulgence so that um, Casella didn't have to wait another year. So he's arrived at purgatory earlier than he expected. So it's another example here at the foot of purgatory of the mercy of God at work in the world. So here's this wonderful example. The guy didn't have to wait a year. I think if, if most of us, I'm, I'm, 
I'm always wary talking for other people, but I'm assuming that if when most of us die, let's say we were there and we had a chance to stay there or go on to heaven, I think most of us would want to get on to heaven. <laughs> so Casella descends, he disembarks, they're together, and they both love music, so they start singing. And that's when Cato comes up and knocks them over the head and says, what are you laggards doing? Get on. And I remember asking you guys how it lines up with the beginning of the Inferno, and I'm trusting you all remember that. It's ironic and it's parallel. The opening of the Inferno, the, the, the first human, the, the scene dealing with human sin, is the Francisco Paolo It's the one I just mentioned. And remember that what led Francisco and Paola into sin was literature. They, I keep laughing at myself and hoping you guys hear the danger here for all of you, not just me. I think it's a serious danger, and I'm saying that as somebody who spent his life in literature who loves it, you know that. Um, what led Paolo and Francisca to sin was literature. They were so taken by the beauty of the art and, and what the Lancelot um, poet was describing um, in what happened between Lancelot and, or the, um, the, sorry, the King Arthur poet, what was going on with um, Lancelot and Guinevere, they were so overcome. That is, the, the, the power that literature has to awaken in us an actual scene and make it so convincing that we're of it. And I'm, I'm assuming all of you know this. If you've gone to a good movie and read a good book, or maybe some of the scenes in the Inferno, sometimes you're so engrossed in them as if they're real. By the way, that's going to be one of the great virtues of, of the Purgatorio. The, the souls are all going to be helped by art. We'll come to that in a minute. But here, um, Francisco and Paola are led into sin by art. And here at the beginning of the Purgatorio, Dante and Casella are lagging because they're so overcome by the beauty of a song. So Dante's being very clear about the dangers of art. It's this mixture of censure, criticism, laws. There are things to take seriously while this mercy is being given. That's the spirit of purgatory. Okay. Now here's where I wanted to focus because to me it's one of the most important things in in everything we've looked at so far. At the the purgatory begins if you just look at it for a, a second. Um, very first canto. For better waters now the little bark of my poetic powers hoists its sails and leaves behind that cruelest of the seas. Remember that in the beginning he passed those seas, a swimmer that had never been passed before. Now he's passed them. You can call that the water of baptism. You can call it a water of threshold, leaving one world for another. Rivers typically mark boundaries in literature. And I shall sing about that second realm where man's soul goes to purify itself and become worthy to ascend to heaven. None of us will stand in the presence of God except like him. And we shall see him as he is and be like him. Here let death's poetry arise to life, O muses, sacrosanct whose liege I am, and let Calliope rise up and play her sweet accompaniment in the same strain that pierced the wretched magpies with the truth of unforgivable presumptuousness. Dante's begin. this is interesting, he's beginning the positive 
stage of his journey um, with an invocation to the muses. And all of you are in a position now to know the importance of this. None of the ancient epics began without this invocation. Every one of them began with a poet invoking Calliope. Homer said, Sing, muse, the anger of Peleus' son. That's the Iliad, Achilles. In the Odyssey, Sing, muse, the man of many ways. It's Odysseus in his journey, right? Virgil, Sing, man, the fugitive from fate. It's Aeneas. So every one of the epics begins with an invocation of the muse. And it's interesting that he doesn't begin, this, he doesn't offer this invocation until the beginning of purgatory, which is the natural answer to, to return to nature, to make that ascent. I just want to, I want to take a minute with this because it's so huge. Um, you remember in the ancient world that Calliope was one of the nine daughters of Mimosine and Zeus. Zeus is the father of the gods. And Mimosine was this Mimosine from memory, mnemonic. Um, she's an image of some kind of cosmic memory that it's only um, with the help of one of the daughters that we can enter into that past. Now this is crucial, absolutely crucial to what we're doing. Most people will blow this off today. They'll say it's just a technical thing. It's, it's a technical element of the, uh, of the epic. It's not. This is not a technical element. Students today will say it's a convention. It's just an artistic convention. It's not. Absolutely not. Dante's invoking um, Calliope because she's the daughter of Mimosine and Zeus. And it's through her that we enter something like a cosmic memory, something of the past that man has lost. If you know anything about the generation of the gods, you know that they started from these other powers and by stages it came to the gods and the titans and the revolution. And it finally settled in Zeus and his generation. So something, some form of permanence entered creation. It's a little bit like evolution. They have a sense that there was this beginning, but it all took a form of permanence with Zeus and his generation. We go in to the epics through memory, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. It's to go back into a past that we've lost. Modern critics would call it a form of idealizing something in the past. In our world, we call it Eden, the garden. The, the, we, were, we were one with God, and it's a part of our, um, what does Jung call it, our collective unconscious. It's in all of us. We all have this longing to return to something we lost. What exactly that state was, we don't know. Dante here is invoking the muses to go back to this past. Now here's, if you've got my notes that I sent you today, you might look at them because I've got a couple of quotes that are really important. I've listed all the nine muses. I don't want to go into them right now. Um, Melpomene, tragedy, um, polyhymnia, hymns, um, terpsichordi, dance. I mean, we can go on and on. Here's, here's the point I want to make. St. Augustine knew that memory had a cosmic dimension to it, that it took us back to creation. In the beginning was the word, or God made this, it was good. On the first day, he made this. 
morning came, evening followed. You know, it goes like that. I just love that opening. This he made it was good. Um, how does it? And it was good. What um, before he says morning came and evening followed the second day, the third. So there's this goodness to everything that God made. This freshness in man and God are in union. But the fall took place and we've lost it. So for St. Augustine, memory was not just, I remembered growing up in a home, and in my childhood in a certain area in the city. It means there's something before the world as we know it um, that's a part of our subconscious that we long to return to. We've been talking about that from the beginning. We saw it up close in, in um, um, Auden's um, Hore Canonica. Remember what he talked about the Edenic man and the and the utopian man. The Edenic man looked back to Eden. The utopian looked forward to a ideal world. Saint Augustine said there were three powers to the human soul. Memory. I want everybody to pay attention here. He said there are three powers: memory, understanding, and will. Memory, understanding, and will. And he didn't do that casually. He connected it with the Trinity and said that the roots of those things are in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That man is made in the image of God and he's Trinitarian by nature. So this Trinity, this threesome, is not technical, it's not accidental, it's in our nature. That's why I've been pushing it so hard, you know, in the works that we've been doing. But here's where I want to go. Thomas added something to St. Augustine because he thought that St. Augustine was a little bit too platonic, and I think he was. Thomas said that there are three aspects to our soul because we are made in the image of God. He said the, the three aspects are these, and I want everybody to pay a special attention to this. The three aspects are being, I am, reason, I know, and love, will, I love. Let me put this differently. Can you love if you don't exist? Can you do anything if you don't exist? Being is a condition of our nature. God said, I am that am. I am. He is being itself. Descartes turned that around in the modern world. It's why the modern world is on its head. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. He made being contingent on thinking. He made thinking primary, as if we thought ourselves into creation. I hope everybody's seen that. God is. He is being itself. And you can't separate his being from his thinking, his reason, his wisdom, and his love. So St. Thomas says that the three qualities that make up the human person are being, reason, and will. And what we're watching is the way in which um, we either learn to use those faculties well. In hell, we can say, people have turned away from being. They've turned away from reason. They don't reason well. They don't even understand. And they've turned away from love. That's what hell is. And in purgatory, they're trying to recover their good use of all of them. To be good. To reason well to reason in love, and to love well. So every one of the levels shows them undergoing penance to help them perfect that Trinitarian nature.
Okay? I know this is probably too philosophical, but I but I hope it, I hope it's everybody's seen this. Now here's where I want to go with this, because all of that, just as I presented in my mind, is a little bit too technical. So what? Who cares? Who cares? I care. Here's why. Here's why. St. Thomas says in his treaty on God and being and the Trinity, he says, and listen to this, because the human world will not get this. I know of people who have made stupid arguments about the Trinity. If they saw this and had their heads on, they'd get rid of their stup stupidity pretty quickly. But here, this is what Thomas said. Everybody wrap your head around this. In the Trinity, among created, he said, among created things, a world of chairs and tables and birds and people, one is a part of two, and two a part of three, as one man is a part of two men, and two men are of three. But it is not this way with God. For the Father is as much as the whole Trinity, quia tantus e pater, that's the Latin, the Father is of the same magnitude as the whole Trinity, which, which means this. In the Trinity is one less than two. Is the Son any less than the Spirit and Father? Or is, the, or is the Father and Son greater than the Spirit? Absolutely not. Because we're not in a physical world, we're in a metaphysical, where the laws of nature as we know them don't apply. It's one God, so each of the person shares in that wholeness. Christ is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is God. They're one with each other. So one can never be less than two or two greater than one. And you know if you put three cups down and ask a child, here's one cup, here's two, are the two cups greater than one? Any child who had a sense would say, of course, what a stupid question. Because it's obvious. Right? Two coins is worth more than one. Two popsicles is worth more than one to any child who loves popsicles. Ask him. But is that so in the Trinity? No. So here's where I'm going. In the Trinity, we have a perfect image of indwelling. One person indwelling with another. Each one loves and is loved. Right? Perfectly. If we're made in his image, what's our call to finally do? It's to indwell, to be loving, to be one with another. What the church calls one flesh. What we're going to see in the Paradiso, we're going to actually see that happen. It's one of the most amazing things in all of literature. You guys have got to be patient. I hope you will be. It's one of the most amazing things. It's at the center of our church. There is nothing like it in the Protestant world. There's nothing like it in the secular scientific world. You know in our, in our world, um, two things can't occupy the same space by virtue of matter. It's a principle of our existence. In the Trinity, that's not so. Each person is distinct. Each person is whole in himself, one with the others. So if we're made in God's image, 
The love that we're asked to bring to each other is one of indwelling. I hope everybody's understanding the implication because think about the risks or adventure that that entails. To try to be one with another, given that other person sins. Lots of people say they love each other and then separate and divorce because the sins are too much. They didn't know that they were going to have to bear those sins. Once they're married, they discover them. They don't want anything to do with each other. At the center of our faith is this bearing of sins, of becoming one with another. So the journey up, pur up purgatory is learning how to love, to be one with God, to be more one with each other. Now here's where I want to go with this. Memory, in this sense, is returning home to recover what we once had. The term that the church uses, I, I mentioned this last week, remember, is anamnesis, anamnesis, to carry back. The Greek for Christ's do this in memory of me, do this in memory of me, those are his words. We receive the Eucharist as a way of going back to carry him forward in our time, to be with him now. Do this in memory. We have to recover that past. So the whole journey of purgatory is an attempt to recover the past that I've been talking about in these mythic terms. It's to go home. So this whole theme of nostalgia, remember that was, was introduced in the Odyssey and then in the Aeneid, because remember the whole of the, of the Odyssey has to do with nostos, the home to go home. And the whole action of the Aeneid was for Aeneas to found a home, and he discovered that the home he founded was actually where his ancestors began, and he didn't know it. So when he arrived, he realized he was coming home. That image profoundly affects the greatest of our literature. So the journey up the mountain is not just a journey. Um, it's going home. It's a recovery in a sense of who we are with each other and with God. It's learning to take away our sins, to do penance, to answer for them. At each point, learning to see that when we do, we see more. We understand more. We hold on to more. That's the condition of getting home. To recover what we once had and have lost. So let me... Let me stop, because I know this is all so simple. <laughs> Let me stop, and, and I know that's a lot. I know that's a lot. Let me take your questions. Purgatory is not just purgatory. It's not just a mechanical, technical action. There's a lot going on here in the human soul that the church is protecting. These things are at the center of our church. That's our faith. So... Let me stop. Any questions? Karen, I do not believe you don't have questions. And Bob, you've got wonder all over your face. I mean, you've got questions all over. Come on, you guys. I can't believe there are no questions here. So, Dante is going up the mountain now. Who's this? How much is Bob. 
This is Bob. Oh, Bob, sorry, go ahead. Is he, maybe I missed this, he's been through hell. For sure. And going through purgatory, but he doesn't, does he actually realize what his main sin is? I mean, your trip through purgatory is to, I guess, cleanse yourself of a sin, but does he even realize what his sin is? Yeah, he does. We'll get there. He's actually going to say, does anybody know what his greatest sin is? He'll admit it. Pride? Right. Right. I hope you all, I mean, I, we're getting a little bit ahead, but I, it's just, it's, it's, always, it's always a pleasure for me to go back. Just remember that at some point we'll learn, if it's not clear yet, that Dante was damned. And we won't see that until a while, and then we'll understand he was on his way to damnation. So what we're seeing is what happens to the human soul when he begins to awaken to his own sins and turns away from the threat of damnation to returning to God. And Dante himself knows that he's, he's going through this journey as a vision with help with Virgil, that when he dies, he will have to undergo it again. You know, what time he'll take in doing it, we don't know. He doesn't know, but he doesn't say. But right now, it's, it's a prophetic work. He's, he's learning this like a prophet in order to bring it back to us to help us in that same journey, I think. I just kind of wondered because when he when he goes up to three steps into purgatory, which is the act of contrition, I guess yeah. he he doesn't really make an act of contrition. I mean, there's not. He doesn't say this is my sin. He just gets to cross over. Yeah. No. Yeah, I get right. I mean, it's a good question, Bob. I'd wait till we get. I'm I, I just hoping okay. we get there tonight. I'm not sure that we will, but <clears throat> and I, the fact that he doesn't say anything doesn't mean he doesn't feel it. But but it's a good question. Let's wait till we get there. All right. But does everybody see these larger sort of governing perspectives that there's a lot going on in purgatory that is in, that's a that's a part of the whole journey that doesn't always get expressed in words, but it's important to see them. Ready? Hey, Sorry. Um, not everybody will start at the bottom, right? In purgatory, according to Dante, is it, it's according to, let's say you didn't have the sin of pride. Or, so you wouldn't stop, you wouldn't start at that bottom level, would you? Or would you... <laughs> Connie I, Connie, I would say this. Um, nobody. I know we don't know. Well, no, well, I think we do. I mean, I'm going out. I think I'm going out on a limb here, but I'm going to say it. I think I think it's truthful. Nobody would have any other sin if they didn't have pride, because pride is at the root of every sin. Every sin. That's why it starts. That's why we won't. As a matter of fact, here what we're going to go to go to Bob's. When Dante ascends to the gates, we're going to learn that what happens there is exactly what happened in the Inferno. He's going to pass from a pre-gate stage to the gate unconscious. Just the way he did in hell, because remember, across the river he was unconscious. It was a way of saying, 
we're not aware of our first sins. We just don't know the depths of ourselves when we commit them. What happens in that moment is an act of grace. He's only there with the help of God. That's why the eagle takes him up. Um, but when you enter purg- or the, 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 ac- the action of under- do- undergoing penance, you start with the root of all your sins because the, only, the sins only exist because of that root. The root of all sins is pride. We put ourselves before God. We do all these things in that spirit and we've got envy and wrath and all the other sins. Um, by the time you get to um, um, avarice and gluttony and lust, which you know were the highest ones, I, I said that last time, you don't get there if, if pride and envy aren't a part of what you're doing still because there's no lust that doesn't have pride somewhere in it. Um, I don't have to follow these rules. I can have an affair with this woman or this man or you know, exactly what happened with Francisco and Paolo. Every one of us has sins, but the root of those sins, I think for every one of us, is pride. Where we learn to get rid of our, fi- our pride, we get closer to God. And I think we get closer to a cross and death. In the ancient world, the world we just looked at in Francis at um, Sophocles, what we learn with Oedipus, Remember that I just described him? He didn't know that he'd committed these sins. The, the one truth that, that the ancient world knew is presumption, that we, we don't know often what we don't know. That, that was the fundamental truth of Oedipus Rex. And we see that through, we saw it in the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Aeneid, it was there in all of them. Christianity doesn't change that, it adds to it. It still carries over. We, we so often don't know what we don't know in our pride. The difference is in, in Christianity, um, we don't know, we won't go on to God until we admit our sins. If we think we're not in sin, there's a good chance that we're in trouble. Um, and in, so in Christianity, the conditions for going to God is knowing our own sins, that's the beginning of the Comedia, right? Dante's got to learn to know them. So knowing our own sins, because how can we undergo penance? How can we, how can, how can we grow in humility? How can we grow in humility if we don't say, that's a sin. I'm sorry, I've got to do something about it. And even if we keep failing, we keep going back to confession, um, we're struggling to get rid of that in humility. That's why we go to confession to say, I've sinned. It's a humbling experience for all of us, I think. So the first condition is knowing your own sin. That was the beginning of the Commedia. And accepting death on a cross. If we don't learn to die, we're not going to live again. Those are Christ's words. So what's happening going up purgatory is they're dealing with the sins. The root of them are pride and envy and wrath. Now remember, that's why I took time with them last week. The, the three levels at the bottom are the spiritual sins. They're sins of evil. It's the God made nothing bad. He created nothing bad. We bring evil into the world by our own sins. So we disagree with the Protestants who say everything in nature is corrupt and bad. It's evil. It's not. According to our beliefs, everything in nature is good. God made it. But it's also fallen. So the Three sins at the bottom are the basic spiritual sins. They're at the root of everything above. Pride, 
putting yourself above another person, and so wanting to put him down. Envy, wanting something that another has, and so wanting that person to lose it. He's got a car and he's wealthy. You smile when his house burns down because um, he's lost what you wish you had and don't have. That's what envy is. Um, wrath, when somebody hurts you. Um, getting back at them, wanting to hurt them back. So pride and envy and wrath are at the center of all of them and the self-centeredness of putting oneself above others. It's in envy, it's in wrath. It's in all of them. The sins up above are love of good. They're good. They're not evil. They're not love of evil, like the sins below, pride, envy, and wrath. Those are love of evil. The sins are above are love of good, but excessively. Loving food too much, loving things too much, loving sex too much. And sloth in the middle is not loving adequately, not loving enough those things that are good. So going up purgatory is an act of learning to order our loves, to bring them in accord with our nature, God's nature, God's justice, his order. And remember, every level um, unfolds the same way the levels did in the Inferno. Every level has its contrapasso. It's, um, it's an externalization of the, of the sin being undone. And every level has goads and checks. Um, goads are images of the sins. or Goads are images of the virtue opposite the sin. And the checks are images of the sin itself. So as the souls go up, we all know that, right? Don't all of you have these experiences? When you see somebody doing something wrong, don't you say that's bad and I don't want to do that? It's like a check to say, I don't want to be like that. And when you see somebody doing something virtuous, you say, I'm grateful. It strengthens me to see that. I, I want to do that. When you heard Father James's homily that day, Ghana, you were inspired. Say yes. You know, so all around us is art. It's God's art. People revealing our, us to ourselves. I don't want to do that. I do want to do that. That's what's going on in purgatory at every level. He, the, the, penitent, the penitents are surrounded by images, helping them to see themselves and encourage them. Every level has its own song. Every level has its own prayer. They're surrounded by an art that is uplifting and encouraging them. Is exactly what we experience in the Mass. Okay. So, Bob, question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I apologize if this is something you covered last week, but uh, as Virgil and Dante are approaching the Mount, before they get to the gate, they encounter several persons or groups of persons who are uh, committed to uh, spend a no, uh, various long periods of time in right. waiting right. before they begin the, the, uh, the purgatory. Uh, so I guess I'm trying to get a grasp of what, what those persons are, why they are uh, destined for that? Is it a case of Im imperfect contrition on their parts that 
is delaying them? What what is? I don't quite get that. Yeah, it's a good. It's a, it's actually where we're going, Michael. It's, I mean, we're ready. We're we're right at that point, but. But okay. it's an no, no. So, but let me ask everybody. I mean, I don't know if you guys have read my note because it's given away there. But if you've read, um, so the question is, what's going on in anti-purgatory? That that condition prior to actively beginning penance, when you pass through the gates of Saint Peter, why are those people outside? So the que- I think it's just an excellent question. Why why is Dante showing us anti-purgatory? What's going on? Here, let's let's go. That's because this is where we're starting. I've, so, um, Cato has just humiliated both of them. Virgil's head is downturned. They come to the mountain and ask for directions, and they come across this guy named Manfred on page 210. Now, remember what I said earlier. The, the sinners here are committing the same sins we saw in hell. Um, exact same sins. The difference is their whole attitude towards their sins and God has changed. They're learning to love and to have better minds, to use their reasons in a better way. Page 210. So they come across this man um, and this is what takes place. Then with a smile he said, Manfred I am, grandson of Empress Constance, and I beg you when you are with the living once again, go to my lovely child, mother of kings, who, who honor Sicily and Aragon, whatever may be rumored, tell her this. As I lay here my body torn by these two mortal wounds, weeping, I gave my soul to him who grants forgiveness willingly. Now this was, this is really interesting. He was the son of the emperor. So he had nobility, power, authority. All the things that we learned in Boethius tempt us away from God. Power, pleasure, right? All of them. Um, And this is only going to be the first example of something we're going to encounter again in another minute. He was in a battle. Um, He set himself against the pope. The pope sent armies against him because the pope was embroiled in politics. In one of these one of the more famous battles between the Gelfs and the Ghibellines. We've been talking about that. The Gelfs and the Ghibellines were destroying each other as political rivalries. They were So this isn't the Democrats and Republicans being nasty verbally in opposition. These are men killing each other, either in support of the emperor or the pope. That's how violent the battles were. Manfred was killed, but he was, he was an Epicurean, Remember where we saw, who, who remembers? Here's a quiz. Passing this quiz is conditioned for going on to the rest of this course, you guys. <laughs> Somebody better rescue this class here. You guys are in trouble. Mary Jane, where was it? The Epicureans. What do you mean, where was it? In hell, where do we encounter the Epicureans? Well, okay. Was there a gluttony part? That was. That was. At that level. That was. That was before. (laughs) You guys are all at risk right here. Somebody better come in. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me look at my notes. Don't look at your notes. Don't go into those notes. I remember. Connie, do you remember? 
Well, well, they didn't believe in, um, you know, the, the afterlife, an eternal life, so they had to have been at the bottom. Where were they? Can you remember in the journey? I need to give you guys quizzes. I need to toughen you guys up. <laughs> you really do. <laughs> no, here, here. After, after Dante passed the level of the incontinent, remember the upper levels? He passes the river and approaches the gates of Dees. Remember, and he goes through the gates of Dees. That's the boundaries of hell proper. He sees the Medusa, or Virgil sees the Medusa and turns away. When they go into the very next level, it's the level of heretics because heresy defines the boundaries of consciousness. It's that stubbornness of mind that doesn't want to admit the truth. And it's there that he met Farinata, the Epicurean. Um, and remember, Farinata could see the, and the Epicureans there could see the past or the future, but they couldn't see the present. And the punishment they were undergoing is appropriate because the Epicureans lived only for the present. We talked about it, remember? Yeah. Live today, have, have, eat, drink, eat, drink, and be merry today because there is no tomorrow. There's no immortality to the soul, so have your pleasure now. Manford was an Epicurean, a great noble, a heroic man. He was loved, handsome, courteous, gracious. So Michael's question is, why is he here? here let's, let's go on. So, so here, he's an Epicurean, just like Farinata. Farinata's in hell. Why is Manford here? As I lay there, my body torn by these two mortal wounds, he was an Epicurean all his life, at the last moment of his death, weeping, I gave my soul to him who grants forgiveness willingly. What's Dante saying about God and his mercy or his justice? So even if he was bad all of his life, at the last moment of his life, he repented? Yeah, right. And we're going to see it in a minute with another soul, because the soul is going to, another, once again, in another battle. Think about the parallel between this and Francisco and, and uh, Paola. They were making love, were not intending to die, but the lover comes in, or the husband comes in and kills them. There's no time for, this is so amazing, the tightness of the line that Dante's dying. There was no time for confession. Manfred was dying and his last breath said, you know, ask for pardon. We're going to see the same thing, exactly the same thing in a minute, when um, a soul um, in his last breath will utter Mary. The devil comes to pick him up, by the way, it is, we're going to come to it. But right at that moment when the devil comes to pick up the soul, just before he dies, he says, Mary. What is that saying about the human? So, if, if you look at, to go back to Michael's question, if you look at the gates of Peter as entrance into the church, what's before that? Manfred was an Epicurean. Denied God. Here, let's keep going. Here, let's find the next soul. Go to page 216. They go on. 216 in the middle of the page. They come across a soul whose name is Balakwa. There was one there who could tell was tired, for he sat with his arms hugging his knees, letting his head droop down between his legs. 
Oh, my dear master, look at him, I said. See that man, lazier he could not look. Not even if lazy were his middle name. The shape there turned to look at us and said, raising his face no higher than his thigh, if you're so energetic, run on up. And then I knew who this soul was. He, um, he knows by that response. Finally, when I stood by his side, he raised his head a bit and said, is it quite clear to you by now just why the sun drives past you on the left? His lazy ways and his sarcastic words made me half smile, and I replied to him, Balakwa, I'm not sure, I, I'm, I'll not have to worry now about your fate. Balakwa wishes him on. Um, here, let's go on page 221. Um, he runs to, into several souls here, but I want to focus on Biocanti here on the top of 221. They come across another soul who says, I'm Biocante, once, once from Montefeltro, no one, not even Giovanna, cares for me, and so I walk ashamed among these souls. I said, what violence, or was it chance, swept you so far from um, the Compaldin that no one ever found your body place, your burial place? He said, below the Casentino flows the river Archiano, which arises above the convent in the Apennines. Beyond it takes another name, and there I made my way, my throat an open wound, fleeing on foot and bloody in the plain. He was again in one of these political wars. There I went blind. I could no longer speak, but as I died, I murmured Mary's name, and there I fell and left my empty flesh. Now bear the truth, tell it to living men. God's angel took me up, and hell's fiend cried, O you from heaven, why steal what is mine? An angel from hell comes to get him. And an angel from heaven comes and interrupts. Who's got the greater power here? You may be getting his immortal part and one for um, a measly tear at that, but for his body I have other plans. You know how vapor gathers in the air then turns to water when it's returned. Um, so the um, angel from heaven takes him and saves him and brings him here. Um, at the bottom of 222, Oh, please, when you are in the world again, and are quite rested from your journey here, a third soul following on the second said, Oh, please remember me. I'm called Pia. Sienna gave me life. Maramama, death. And as he knows who began it, when he put his gem upon my finger, pledging faith. Now, why are all these souls, particularly, let's take um, Manfred and um, Balakwa and Biocante, why are they where they are? waiting. Manfred has to wait, if I remember, 30 times the length of time on earth. Um, why are they where they are outside of the gates, what's called anti-purgatory? Because they wasted, wasted most of their life and not, not um, being faithful to God and at the last possible second decided to repent and then uh, luckily for them god's mercy was upon them yeah you can actually take the anti-purgatory and break it into two stages the excommunicate manfred belongs because he was excommunicated does the fact that you're excommunicated mean you're damned no it does not according to the church 
It's so clear. It's so. It's, this is the catechism. What, what, whether you guys are realizing it or not, this is the catechism. The excommunicate are not damned. They're put outside the help of the church offers because they refuse it. So you've got the excommunicate with Manfred, and then you've got the late repentant in three different stages. You've got the indolent, Balakwa. You've got the unshriven. They weren't confessed. We didn't look at Jukpaku, but he was right before Biogante. Sordello. And just beyond those, the preoccupied. So here's what Dante's showing us. The people are placed where they are in accord with how responsible they were for themselves, seeing their sins as they were and beginning to pick them up. I'll say that again. They're placed where they are in accord with how responsible, the responsibility they took for themselves and their sins and began to take them up. So if they, if they ignored that until the very end of their life, they've got to wait longer. Manfred was an excommunicate. He's, he's got to wait an even longer time. So once again, Dante's showing God's justice. That people can't play around. That what they chose in life is real. But here's the amazing thing. Balacqua and, um, or uh, Manfred, sorry, and um, Biocante were both saved at the last moment. What's that showing us about God and his justice and mercy? That the last moment is soon enough. Say again, Doc. The last moment is soon enough. But God explain. Do you, can everybody hear Suzanne? Say again, Doc. God will accept you at the last moment. If in the last fraction of a second of your life, you say, I made a mistake. Um, what does that say about God's justice and mercy? Well, he's going to be just, so you're going to have to wait a long time. Um, but his mercy is, you may have to wait, but you're going to get to heaven. Does everybody hear that? What, what's extraordinary to me, I mean, think about the church and people in, what that, by the way, you should know this by now, most of the people in hell are Catholics. <laughs> I, I hope that's clear. There, the cat, hell is full of popes and bishops and priests. So the fact that somebody's a Catholic, is not, I mean, Christ himself said people are going to say Christ and he's not, you know, not going to hear them. Hell is full of Catholics, priests and um, teachers. God. Um, um, but what Dante's showing us is there are lots of people outside the church. God, human beings were made in the image of God they were meant to love. They carry love in them, whether they fulfill it or not. But even if, even if they waste their lives, remember the parable of the last penny, or the, remember when Christ told the parable of the, the people he paid early in the morning and the people who came at the end and the people who resented because the others came in at the end and they still got in? So we're seeing that play out here. What Dante's showing us is that there are souls who wasted their lives. But there's something in them that still wanted God. And if there's anything at all, this is the point, if there's anything at all, God is a loving God. He is not going to pass that person up. And he's not going to undermine his own justice. So if somebody waited until the last minute, like Sardell, or I mean uh, Manfred or Bioconte, 
they will have a longer period because they put off doing penance in their life. That is, they weren't picking up their sins and answering. They were going on as if they didn't have any sins and they could do whatever they wanted. So it's an amazing thing because it, 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 to me it's a wonderful testimony to God's mercy that, that um, we know that there are people outside the faith. We pray for them. Sometimes they can be friends. I mean, we worry about them. Um, sometimes they can be family members. Um, what God is, I mean, what Dante is showing us is that um, what we learned, we did Boethius together, right? Yeah, we did. We did Boethius together. Yeah, remember what Boethius said, um, there is no bad fortune, that God is always, always at work doing something. There may be souls who completely turn away from God. But here we see Manfred, who did turn away from God, who at the very last moment turns to him, and Balakwa, who believed in God, he wasn't um, an Epicurean, but he didn't turn to God until his last breath, and he mentions Mary, and he's... So it's a wonderful testimony again to the presence of God's justice and his mercy. He's not going to overlook something in the human soul that, that wants him, no matter how small, no matter how small. Alright, put your shirt on. So, um, any thoughts, but um, Mike, did that answer your question? Yes, thank you. I'm so glad I could provide you a segue. <laughs> <laughs> That's the last time you're coming in this class, Michael. I'm denying you access next week. <laughs> you can go back to your conflicts. <laughs> oh, bless your souls. Bless your souls, God. Any other questions of what's going on here? Where's the Where's the gates? Let's if, let's see if we can get to the gates. Somebody help me here. Um, I want to look at the um, gates and what happens here. Um, So remember, Dante approaches the in anti-purgatory the excommunicate, and then the late repentance, and there are three stages to the late repentance. Balak remember Balakwa, his hands are in his knees; he can't be bothered. His head—he he doesn't want to lift his head to talk. We know people who are that languid; they just can't be bothered with anything. And he was that way in life. So there he is, and we've got all the other souls. So what Dante's showing us is stage once again. He's He's being faithful to our human nature and what it reveals to us about ourselves. So he goes from the indolent um, to the unconfessed to the preoccupied. In the preoccupied, he's meeting all the princes who were too preoccupied with their jobs to do what they should have done spiritually. I remember when we were early readers of the of the comedian and Suzanne came up to me one day and she's a mother you know I mean we've had four kids and I, I can't remember her words but I think I think what she was saying is if I get to purgatory I hope I hope I'm among the preoccupied it was a way of I mean you know when you're a mother and if you've got we look at Jonathan and Emily who've got seven God if you've got four kids how, how preoccupied you are in your life 
So we go from stages to the gates themselves. And symbolically, um, what we're to understand when we approach the gates is that moment when the soul actively begins penance. And what we see is Dante's carried up on the, on the wings of an eagle and then is placed at the gate and then he goes in and, he, and he, then he goes up the levels. Is everybody clear in that? It, it, really, it, it really stands off in parallel to the inferno. When Dante enters hell, he's unconscious. When Dante begins actual penance, He's unconscious. What Dante's saying is that none of us begins penance without an act of grace from God. It's like the spirit breathing in. We don't know, but one day we want to do something. Where did the choice come from? Was it completely our own? Did we want to start willingly suffering because we're so noble? What he's showing is God's grace working at, at every point. Um, Yeah, page yeah, I got it. Um, on page two forty one, if you can, if we can go there for a minute. Um, it begins now. Pale upon the eastern balcony appeared, the concubine of old Tithonus, arisen now from her sweet lover's arm. It's Aurora. Um, her brow was glittering with precious stones set in the shape of that cold-blooded beast that strikes, poisons people with its tail. So we're entering the second day. So the first day was Dante spent with Virgil um, going through anti-purgatory. Then they had to sleep. The, the sun went down. The rule of the mountain is you do not move. <laughs> Remember, that's severe. That's you can't move, you can't. What he's shown is it's a moment of not depending on self-reliance that we have to stop in acknowledgement that God is at work and work with him. So they spend the night, and this is what Dante describes. When I who carried with me Adam's weight conquered by sleep stretched out upon the grass on which all five of us were sitting then, at the hour when the swallow, close to dawn, begins to sing her melancholy lays, perhaps remembering her ancient woes, and when her mind, far strained from the flesh, less tangled in the network of its thoughts, becomes somehow prophetic in its dreams. So he's dreaming now. It's the night he spends in anti-purgatory, before purgation. Dreaming, I seem to see hovering above a golden feather eagle in the sky with wings outstretched, and ready to swoop down. I seem to find myself in that same place where Ganymede was forced to leave his friends, cut up to serve the conclave of the gods. I wondered, could this be the only place? So an eagle takes him up at the bottom of 241. You must not be afraid, my leader said. Take heart, for we are well along our way. Do not hold back. Push on with all your strength. It's a way of encouraging. Think about this if you're talking with a friend who's discerning entering the Catholic Church. Sometimes some of the things we say, I think, keep people out of the church. The, we can say the wrong things. But here Dante's saying, giving us an illustration of somebody doing what they should, that at that moment, Virgil's encouraging to follow what Dante doesn't completely understand. 
he's been as, he's been asleep you know he's in a dream um ready to lead leave this stage this this spiritual condition of prior to act of penance you have arrived at purgatory now you see the the rampart surrounds it all and when you are when you see the cleft that is the gate before the break of day while your soul slept within your body still at the rest below upon the flowers of that painted glen a lady came she said i am lucha come let me take the man who lies asleep i wish to spend to speed him on his journey up sir dello and the other shades remain she took you in her arms at break of day and brought you here i followed her after before she set you down her lovely eyes showed me the open entrance then she left and as she went she took away your sleep as one who first perplexed is reassured and feels his fear replaced by confidence once what is true has been revealed to him such was the change in me when i saw me free of care my leader made his way up and along the bank with me behind reader you see how lofty is my theme you should not be surprised if now i try to match the grandeur with more subtle art this is where he reaches the steps um 244 we reached the steps white marble was the first polished to the gaze of a looking glass so he sees it with perfect clarity i saw myself reflected as i was the second one was deeper dark than um purse of rough and crumbly fire corroded stone with cracks across its surface length and breadth the third one lying heavy at the top appeared to be a flaming porphyry red as the blood that spurts out from a vein upon this step the angel of the lord rested his feet he sat upon the still which seemed to be of adamantine rock up the three steps my master guided me benevolently saying ask him now in all humility to turn the key <clears throat> falling devoutly at his holy feet in mercy's name i begged to be i begged to be let in but first of all three times i smote my breath um um then with his sword he traced upon my brow the scars of seven p's it's from the last latin peccatum which means sin it's remember those seven p's will be removed one by one as he ascends each of the levels once entered here be sure you cleanse away the wounds he said a lashes of earth when it is dug up dry this was the color of the robes he wore he reached beneath them and drew out two keys one key was silver and the other gold first he applied the white one and then the yellow with that the gate responded to my wish um he said below um then pushing back the portal's holy do- door enter he said to us but first be warned to look back means to go back out again now there's a lot going on here so let's take these things one by one who's lucha what does all that mean she takes him up in the eagle they they go up to the gate so they ascend they ascend from this condition this anti-purgatorial condition to the actual gates and then she leaves who is lucha do you remember the role she played in the beginning of the poem and what's her what's her significance here what's she an image of or who she, she uh didn't she uh 
wasn't she a messenger from uh, Beatrice to the Virgin Mary or vice versa? She was kind of an intercessory role there. I can't quite... Yeah, I'm not going to let this vice versa go, Mike. Which is it? There's a big difference between making her a messenger or a receiver. Get your yes. get your authorities get your authority the line of authorities straight here. There's a big difference. Who did yeah. what at the beginning? Mike, I think you know it. Trace it out. Do you remember? Okay. Uh, Who started it? Mary. Bob, go ahead. Can you recall it? What happened? Mary sent Lucia to talk to Beatrice. I think that was, that might have been the way. And then they <laughs> sent Lucia, I know that. <laughs> to bring to Beatrice to heaven. I've got to get I've got to get the two of you on firm ground here. <laughs> no, you're both you're both there. Um, so what's the who is Lucia and why she so you're right. Mary was taken by Dante's plight. She goes to get Lucia and Lucia knows something. She goes to get Beatrice because Beatrice is the one Dante loves. And Beatrice goes to get Virgil because she knows how important poetry. So we talked about it. Remember what we see is a divine order put into action all under the principle of love, the principal power, the moving power of love. Who's Lucha? Why is she there? She has a she's, she, she's going to play a role several times in this book. Go ahead. Sorry. She's Saint Lucy. Who is what? Why is that important here? Who is she? Why is she going up with Dante on this eagle? Is she going to take him through purgatory? She no. No, she leaves him. Remember the description. She said she left. Um, I am Lucia. Come to take. The man who lies asleep, I wish to speed him up. So she works while he's unconscious in his sleep before she set me down or of her lies, showed me the open entrance. Then she left. She, she leaves and Dante goes up with Virgil and these other... Who is she? What is she image? In the, in the workings of grace. In the workings of grace. Karen, what's your answer? I don't know. I'm going to say Grace. <laughs> you said Grace. That's, no, that's, that's what I was saying. In the workings of Grace. Good question. Dave, was that Dave and Kay? Was that the two of you, or was that Karen and Bob? I couldn't tell. We're, we're talking, but we're not answering. I'm muttering. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, don't, don't be. All of us are muttering. I'm muttering too. I think she's an image of, um, you know, um, I think she's an image of light and order and music, but grace, principally grace. It's operating invisibly. She, she, she's present okay. to Dante. So she's an image of grace, but, but it's, it's as a pr can grace ever be separated from a person? I don't think so. The Holy Spirit breathes into us. Grace is grace isn't like an electric power. It's it comes from a person. It's an act of. So I think she's imaging either Lucia, actually the saint, 
but I think more likely the grace offered by God personally that takes that form. Um, she She's at work when Dante's asleep and unconscious. Um, what Dante's showing us is, that once again, like he did in hell, nobody, nobody enters the action of penance, begins to take on penance, except with the mercy of God, that God is working in us, bringing us. So very often when we think the, we make these, I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, what St. Augustine called these moments of illumination when a light hits us. You know, how, how do we explain those moments when suddenly we say, I've got to do this? I mean, we can say, I did it, it's mine, did it my way. But if we're honest about it, when we make those turns, we're helped by something outside of ourselves. Otherwise, how could we get to it? So I think she images the grace unconscious working in souls to bring that to that moment. What are the three steps? Are you aware of the time? Yeah, what are the three steps? The first one was white, the second one was dark, and the third one was porphyry, red. So white, black, and red. What are the three steps? I think somebody was... Bob, was that you talking about the steps? It's the it's the three steps to confession or an act of contrition. Can you identify each one? Uh, white is here. The shiny surface was looking into your soul, self-examination. Um, the next step is. Um, recognizing your sins and making contrition. Yeah. And the third step is actually penance or I I think at least some of my reading it was when he talked about the blood that spurts from the vein, it was it was saying it's like the blood the blood that Christ shed right. for us right. to be able to be forgiven our sins. Right, right. Yep. So symbolically, I mean, if we put it in terms of the soul, allegorically, what Dante's showing is that what the condition for taking on penance, for beginning to, to take on burdens in our lives, gladly to undo our sins in, an act, in a spirit of justice and mercy, both, that's what penance is, bringing both together. Um, what the condition, spiritual condition, that is the condition of that, is learning to see ourselves as we are in a mirror, clearly, and seeing the blackness, the cracks, all that we saw in the inferno, the things in us that we so often don't want to look at, and then some participation in the cross of Christ, that there is some suffering. You know, when we go to confession, I'm assuming, and I mean, the, the, you know, that that we take real sorrow. That that's a moment of sharing in the blood of Christ. We're sorry for our sins. It's like a moment of being with Him on the cross when He shed His blood. So symbolically, what's happening that takes the soul out of this prior condition, this condition of anti-purgatory, of delaying and waiting to beginning to actively change our lives, is here. What are the two keys? We're out of time, so let's. So Dante goes up the three steps with Virgil, 
and the angel says or un uses the two keys the gold and silver and then he says enter but first be warned to look back means to go back out again so let's just briefly take up those two what are the two keys and why is the angel saying what he does what are the, what's the golden and silver key Wisdom and power. Wow, explain that. Flush that out. <laughs> explain it. <laughs> Come on. Well, the gold is the is the authority or power. And I, the wisdom was for, for silver. I just thought it was because it would be wise to buy silver now. <laughs> not, <laughs> no, bit <laughs> not bitcoins not bitcoins remember Christ gave Christ gave Peter the two keys traditionally the the meaning of the two keys remember that that's stunning in that moment to give keys to what what, what did what were Christ oh Connie what's her name what's her name this is my grandbaby Avery a Avery? Avery. Uh-huh. Avery. Avery, yeah. Avery. I'm giving you a quiz right after the class, so don't <laughs> Hi Avery. Avery. Avery, it's so good it's so good to meet you. Yeah, and, and obviously we're bothering you. Here, quickly. Christ gave Peter the two keys. To what? To loose and bind. So he gave people the authority he gave the Pope the authority to bind somebody or free them into heaven. We've talked about that, that that's an extraordinary power. Lots of people today won't acknowledge it. And my comment about it, I think a couple of weeks ago, or sometime when we've talked about it is, if, if Christ is the founder of the church, and you're dealing with human beings, and human beings are corruptible, and they are, then he's giving Peter the power to bind and loose. That is, in some sense, the authority to answer evil. If Christ, remember, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that power is an extraordinary power, and I think lots of people sort of glibly pass by it, but I think what's happening is, um, without that power, how can the church defend itself against evil, particularly from within the church itself? We know from the very beginning the church has been beset by corruptions. It's never been free of corruptions. Um, it's slow in taking on justice or acting in justice because it can do wrong. Um, but that's the power. So the gold key is the authority to bind and loose. It, in this instance, it lets Dante pass in. The silver key has always been understood as the wisdom with which to apply it. Remember, we are, we've already had that one scene in hell where the priest... Um, gave the Pope the advice he needed to win the war against Catholics, and he did it knowing that he would be absolved in confession. That was a sin, that he was abusing the sacrament. So was the Pope using his authority well? 
And did he use his authority wisely? No. So the two keys represent the, the predicament that, or the, yeah, the problem that Pope faces in, in exercising that authority that Christ gave him. To bind and loose and to have the wisdom with which to do that. And you can imagine how hard that is because it has to do with um, this. And notice, notice Manfred was not damned. He was excommunicate. So the church is very careful with respect to final ends. But here we're seeing the angel representing Peter using the golden silver key to let Dante begin this. And it's a condition every soul entering penance has to take seriously. When he says, enter but first be warned, do not look back, why is he saying that quickly? Remember Lot's wife. She did not want to give up that life. To enter purgatory means you, you, you can't look back. Even if you fail, you, know, you have to keep looking forward. With all our struggles, um, we keep looking to Christ's grace to help us. So we are going to start purgatory proper next week. We'll, we'll see if we can get through the first several levels. I'll see if we can't tackle pride, envy, and wrath. Those are the three spiritual sins, so see if we can get through them, okay? Connie, it's good to see you and your family. I know we're holding you up, so um, sorry for that. Oh, no, no, no. She just brought the babies. They're oh. going to spend the night tonight. Are you going to introduce your... Is that your daughter? Yeah, she wants to be here. Okay, I just want to say hi Come on over here, you guys. Hello. This is my oldest daughter, Samantha. Samantha, hi. And How are you? My, daughter, my middle child, Amanda. Amanda, hi. yeah. Nice to meet y'all. This, this is my daughter, Avery. I know, we've already, just so you know, <laughs> just just so you know, we're praying for anybody who happens to be related to Connie. I had to say that. I, I, I can only say that because Connie knows me. <laughs> Either way, we appreciate. Yeah, prayers are always appreciated. You guys are. Uh, we. Um, I, I have a genuine fondness for your mom. I mean, I really do. Um, she. Um, you have a really good mother. So bless your souls. Okay, you guys. Um, you guys all have a good week. Um, keep us in your prayers, all of us together, and all of you be safe. Be really safe, okay? See you next week. See you next week. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. You're welcome. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Good night.